Good morning. Um, Rich Rothstein and Jonathan Ross aren't here today, so they asked me to do the trivia question for Cookie Learn this morning. I'm Karen Hike, one of the Culinary Medicine Cookie Learn team members. And um, hopefully you were able to get some breakfast. Today's topic was healthy eating for the prevention and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Um, we, um, you might have noticed that the Cookie Learn team was not here last week. We were away at a conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. Um, any of you who are interested in culinary medicine and nutrition, we highly recommend that you check it out for next year. Um, and we were there learning a lot of um, up-to-date nutrition information as well as learning more recipes to cook. So um, we repeated uh, the healthy plate last week and today's trivia question was named two elements of a healthy eating plate. So first we'd like to uh, do the most creative answer which was Eric Rothstein. One, vegetables, two, bacon. <laughs> and then our um, winner is um, whole grains and veggies and that's Kathy Kirkland. So we, um, we, the prize this week was actually a book we picked, picked up from one of the guest chefs at the conference, um, uh, Bryant Terry, who teaches inner city kids about the connection between um, nutrition and health. And we just wanted to quickly read, um, we wanted a book that would stir you to action and stir up your appetite, for we live in an upside down world where food that is supposed to sustain us is making many of us sick, where farming has become a wasteful industrial practice, but millions are trying to write it. And the good news is that writing it can be so simple and taste so good. That's what this book and what uh, Cookie Learn is about. Thank you. It's called Grub. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you may notice, I am not Rich Rossi and I'm not Jonathan Ross. Um, but I am Jeff Munson. I'm the Interim Section Chief for Pulmonary, and it's my pleasure to introduce this morning's Medical Grand Round speaker. Um, but before I do, I wanted to say a word about Joseph Lynch, for whom this endowed lectureship is named. Um, Dr. Lynch couldn't join us today. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that it's minus eight here and probably 78 where he is. But um, he was a graduate of Dartmouth Medical School in 1971. He did his internship and residency in medicine and uh, his fellowship in pulmonary disease at the University of Michigan, um, where he then spent 25 years on faculty before moving to the David Geffen School at UCLA. Um, since he joined uh, UCLA, he has been appointed the Holt and Joe Hickman Endowed Chair of Advanced Lung Disease and Transplantation and is the Associate Chief of Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine and Allergy. So as a still practicing academic pulmonologist, it's not that surprising that he wasn't able to join us. However, in future years, we are hopeful that he will, but we are indebted to his continued support for this lectureship. So uh, it is now my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Sally Wenzel. Um, she received her undergraduate and medical degree at the University of Florida before doing her residency at Wake Forest University and then her pulmonary fellowship at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, she then spent many years at National Jewish in Denver, which is one of our premier pulmonary institutions of medicine, ascending to full professor with an endowed chair in pulmonary biology. She was then recruited to the University of Pittsburgh uh, in 2006 to become the director of the University of Pittsburgh Asthma Institute. And she is also the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Chair in Translational and Airway Biology and the subsection chief of allergy in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine. 
Um, it is safe to say that Dr. Wenzel is a prolific author and thought leader in the area of asthma biology. She has published over 200 papers related to uh, airway immunology and asthma. Um, she is also an excellent clinician, still leading uh, her Center for Asthma with a specific focus on severe asthma. Uh, she has received numerous awards, including the American Thoracic Society Recognition Award for Scientific Accomplishment, and the Elizabeth Rich Award as a role model for women in medicine and science. Uh, it really is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sally Wenzel here to talk to us today. Thank you, Jeff, for that very nice introduction. And as we go through the talk this morning, um, please realize I actually do not have severe asthma. It may sound like I have severe asthma, but I'm really recovering from a fairly nasty upper respiratory infection that's now kind of caused some bronchitis. So anyway, but as far as I know, I don't yet have severe asthma. Um, all right, so these are my disclosures, just uh, so that you're aware. I will talk quite a bit about uh, the Sanofi study. I've actually gotten no financial support from uh, Sanofi for doing any of that. Well, before you really talk about approaches to a disease, you have to kind of define the disease. And certainly one of the things that is really important in severe asthma is to, to sort of differentiate it from uh, both milder asthma and difficult asthma. And so as part of the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society effort um, to really develop guidelines for severe asthma, we actually had a, took a, a particular approach to doing that. And so our steps to um, defining severe asthma were, number one, to confirm an asthma diagnosis and identify um, difficult to treat asthma. I'm going to look at my pointers here. I think I'll just use this. That'll probably work. Um, to differentiate severe from milder asthma and to determine whether severe asthma is controlled or uncontrolled. So sort of a stepwise process. And the first one is to confirm that an asthma that a patient actually has asthma and to identify difficult to treat asthma. And this is certainly critical to defining and identifying severe asthma. It requires that the primary diagnosis, uh, that other primary diagnosis be excluded, including vocal cord dys dysfunction. It requires appropriate treatment of comorbidities, including poor adherence addressable environmental exposures, et cetera. And at least as part of the ATS-ERS guidelines, we suggested that the patient should be evaluated by an asthma specialist for about three months before you really consider that the patient truly has severe asthma as compared to difficult asthma. Now, this first point... Probably the most important point is, the, is to make sure the patient has asthma. I can't emphasize this enough. We talked about this yesterday, um, Jeff, when, when I met with you. Uh, but basically, I've been very concerned that asthma is very overdiagnosed. And certainly when I got to the University of Pittsburgh, we actually looked at the first 150 patients that were referred to me for a diagnosis of difficult asthma. And they had an extensive evaluation. And interestingly, what we found is of those 150 patients, about a third had no evidence for asthma or very little evidence for asthma. A third that had gotten to me still didn't have a diagnosis of asthma. Now, that was a very specific approach, seeing all the patients that came to my clinic. But 
there's very similar results um, to a study in Canada in milder asthma patients where they did a random dialing approach and evaluating 500 asthmatics and then actually brought a number of them in. And again, about a third of the people that didn't, that were reported to have a diagnosis of asthma actually didn't have the diagnosis of asthma. Interestingly, um, there was a report that just came out in, the, in chest in the last month looking at chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and the same sorts of statistics, about 40 to 50 percent of patients diagnosed with COPD actually don't have any evidence for COPD. So again, I think make sure that you've got the correct diagnosis because if you don't have the correct diagnosis, obviously <coughs> you're not going to be able to treat them. Uh, you're not going to be able to effectively treat them. <coughs> so what's important, what's really crucial to making the diagnosis is spirometry testing. Now, I believe, and certainly all of the guidelines believe that <coughs> Every patient with asthma should have spirometry testing at some point in their in their um, course, and in general, probably about once every year if they're having problems. It should always be done pre and post bronchodilator. That's really important. Um, and the, there's basically three parameters that you're going to look at. You're going to look at the FEV1. <laughs> you're going to look at the FEC, and you're going to look at the FEV1 to FEC ratio. And so, again, the FEV1 is the forced expiratory volume in one second, that amount of air that the patient was able to blow out in, in one second. The forced um, vital capacity is the total amount of air that the patient was uh, able to blow out over that course of the uh, expiration. And then, of course, the ratio is how much they got out in that one second compared to the whole amount. And post-bronchodilator, that FEV1 should improve. <coughs> <clears throat> that FEV1 should improve about 12%. So what are the times to think about masqueraders? Certainly you want to think about masqueraders if you see a patient who's got normal spirometry, but their symptoms are out of proportion to their FEV1. So FEV1's normal, but they're having symptoms. Or they lack a bronchodilator response. On the other hand, you can also have patients who have abnormal spirometry, but they have an atypical pattern to their symptoms. They have poor responses to medications. Those are patients that, again, you're going to want to think about, is this something other than, um, other than asthma? And absolutely positively, the number one masquerader from the standpoint of asthma is vocal cord dysfunction. No doubt about it. And I remember when um, I was at National Jewish and vocal cord dysfunction was actually initially described at, at National Jewish in the early 1980s, and you would hear hear from physicians on the outside, oh, vocal cord dysfunction, that's something you only see at National Jewish. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> vocal cord dysfunction is everywhere. Coming to Pittsburgh, it's just as common in Pittsburgh as, as it was when I was uh, at National Jewish. And these are patients who, in general, have an episodic but a dry cough. If it's a seen in association with gastroesophageal reflux disease or postnasal drip, there can be a productive element to it as well. Patients will often decide episodic chest tightness, often right below their neck. And, and literally, they will say, oh, I just get so tight in my chest. And they'll put their hand right here. And then if you ask them, is it harder to get the air in or harder to get the air out, they will often say, I just can't get my breath. I'm just struggling, gasping to get my air in. So vocal cord dysfunction is... Episodic closure of the vocal cords was initially described in women, often with a history of, of sexual abuse at, at National Jewish. It's still associated with an anxiety, anxious, prone personality, but clearly is much broader than just that. Um, it's appreciated to be present in now in both sexes. It's certainly not only a female disease. It's mostly com most commonly seen in association with postnasal drip and gastroesophageal reflux disease. And if you treat those, the patient will actually usually get better. 
And I think some of this association with gastroesophageal reflux disease actually explains this long history of an association of GERD with asthma, whereas I think the GERD was actually driving more upper airway symptoms than driving asthmatic, true asthmatic um, changes. But obviously, uh, it's, it's a little bit complex. Vocal cord dysfunction in the ENT literature is also known as paroxysmal vocal fold motion disorder. So again, if you see that, that's basically the, the same thing. Typical presentations are a young, rather successful athlete, but not real, real successful. They often have um, a typical shortness of breath. And what I, I, they're often diagnosed with exercise-induced bronchospasm. But unlike exercise-induced bronchospasm, they <coughs> will either have two specific patterns. They'll start out running, and literally within 100 yards, they'll have an attack. I can't breathe. I can't breathe, and, and they you know, have, to, have to stop. Um, or it's more commonly right before the finish line. So they're running towards the finish line. They're in third place as opposed to first place, and all of a sudden they can't breathe. And that's, again, a very typical scenario in that I think there is an anxiety component to this from the standpoint I'm, I need to win the race, I'm not winning the race, and so I can't breathe and, and I um, uh, have to stop because I can't breathe. And again, patients usually describe a problem getting there in. Um, the other common uh, presentation is just a, a chronic cougher. Again, exercise uh, uh, diagnosed with uh, cough variant asthma, often not cough variant asthma, often uh, much more likely to be vocal cord dysfunction. But you can also have vocal cord dysfunction imitating very difficult asthma, difficult or severe asthma. And so I think there are several red flags that you need to consider if you see a patient with difficult asthma who's not responding to their asthma medications. And the first is that they present with a long history of asthma exacerbations, often with a history of ED visits, hospitalizations, et cetera, often with maybe even this, you know, this crazy asthma patient. Um, they're, they're on high doses of every asthma medication, including systemic corticosteroids, but to all of them, they have a poor response to treatment and they have resultant side effects. Again, episodic cough, shortness of breath, especially around irritants. They will often give you this history of, I have allergies to roses, to flowers. Well, you can't have an allergy to a, a flower. That's actually a misnomer. They have a sensitivity to them, but they don't have an allergy. Perfumes, again, you're walking down the, the aisle of the perfume counter at the, at the department store and you have a, a, an asthma attack. That's much more likely to be vocal cord dysfunction than it is to be asthma. Again, can't get enough air and the symptoms are absolutely present despite having relatively normal lung function testing. <coughs> now you can get some clues on spirometry testing. Um, and so again, this is one of the reasons why spirometry testing is so important for every patient with asthma. So you remember I showed you the flow volume loop um, early on about what you would typically see in a normal individual. Everything below the x-axis here is inspiration. Everything above the x-axis is expiration. And in general, in a normal individual, it should be pretty much um, symmetric. In an asthmatic, you actually see changes in expiration. You'll get this uh, concavity occurring sometimes in the expiratory limb. But in vocal cord dysfunction, you actually have inspiratory closure of the vocal cords. So you're not going to have changes on expiration. You're going to have changes on inspiration. And what you see is that you see this flattening of the inspiratory limb of the flow volume curve, very classic for someone who's having closure of their vocal cords. It can be induced or spontaneous, but it, you certainly can get some nice clues by looking at the 
<coughs> the flow volume loops. It's diagnosed by history, flow volume loops, and then definitively by looking down at their vocal cords. Um, here's a, a normal vocal cords on, on inspiration. On inspiration, the vocal cords should be completely open. But if you ask the patient with vocal cord dysfunction to inspire, you'll often see even complete closure. This is a bit of an extreme. But you can get anything from 50% closure to 100% closure. And that's pretty classic for somebody um, who has vocal cord dysfunction. Of course, just to confuse the situation a little bit, you can have vocal cord dysfunction and asthma. So just because a patient has vocal cord dysfunction doesn't necessarily mean they don't have asthma as well. You see that especially in people with chronic sinusitis. Chronic sinusitis is very common in people with pretty severe asthma. So you actually have to tease out whether it's the sinusitis and the postnasal drip that's causing the symptoms, or actually it's the asthma that's driving it. So that's people with generally normal spirometry. What about people with abnormal spirometry? I like to divide those into patients who have an obstructive pattern. Um, again, this is where you have a low FEV1 and a low FEV1 to FVC ratio. Probably the most common um, uh, confounder is COPD. These are usually in a pe people with a history of smoking. And I think at some level there's a tendency for any young person who smokes to call them uh, asthma as opposed to COPD, but kind of depending upon the amount of, of cigarettes that they've smoked over the years, they could actually have COPD. And part of that diagnosis, of course, is, is going to in include looking for bronchodilator responses, depending upon the severity of the disease, other things as well. Less, much less common allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, constrictive bronchiolitis, Schurg-Strauss, very uncommon. You can also see a restrictive pattern where you have a low FEV1, and people sometimes focus just on the FEV1 as opposed to looking at the FEV1 to FVC ratio, which is really critical. And they'll go, oh, this person's got an FEV1 of 60% of predicted, and they have symptoms of asthma. They must have bad asthma. But their ratio is actually normal. Now, most people have no problem sort of picking up if they've got interstitial pulmonary fibrosis as the cause of their restrictive problem. But obese patients um, will have relatively normal chest x-rays, uh, but they will have a, they can have a restrictive pattern. And they're called asthma, but they're really not asthma. They're having shortness of breath because of their weight, uh, because they're deconditioned, et cetera, but they get call, called asthma. You can also have a mixed pattern where you have a low FEV1 and an FEC, but the FEV1 to FEC ratio is still low. Um, that's an obstructive restrictive disease. Probably the most common one here is hypersensitive pneumonitis, which is actually something to always consider. Again, Schurg-Strauss. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about asthmatic granulomatosis or autoimmune airway disease, which is one of the things that um, we described at the University of Pittsburgh. And, I think the diagnosis of all of these can be helped by doing diffusing capacities because diffusing capacities will be low in many of these and often a high resolution CT scan. Okay, so now we're, we think we've got our diagnosis. We think we at least have a, someone with difficult asthma. Now that we've got somebody with difficult asthma, we really want to differentiate it from a patient with milder asthma. <coughs> so severe difficult asthma requires that a patient is treated with high doses of inhaled corticosteroids, and we used 1,000 micrograms or more of fluticasone or the equivalent as our threshold for the amount of steroids that they were taking. 
plus a second controller or, and or systemic corticosteroids to prevent it from becoming uncontrolled or which remains uncontrolled despite that therapy. This is very similar to a definition that the American Thoracic Society uh, published in 2000 that I was part of uh, as the major criteria, except now we're including that you actually have to have a second controller agent uh, before you actually qualify for severe, uh, for uh, that severe form of, of asthma as compared to milder asthma. Okay, so now you've got this patient who's on that amount of therapy. They require high-intensity treatment. They achieve good control only if they're on that high-intensity treatment, or they never achieve good control. They still have poor control despite being on that high-intensity treatment. We've already done this part of the project. We've already made sure that they actually do have, have asthma. Now we have to kind of initially subtype them. And we're not really phenotyping at this point, but we're subtyping. And at this point, I think you want to think about, is this a patient who has potentially treatment responsive, i.e. difficult asthma, um, who is, is having difficult asthma because they're poorly compliant with their medications, their persistent allergen exposure, they're smoking, those sorts of things that are uh, maybe uh, something that you can improve upon. Or do they fall under the category of they have persistent comorbidities, persistent sinusitis, psychosocial issues, obesity, some of which are addressable, some of which are not, or do they fall into this category of treatment-resistant refractory asthma? And I actually argue that there's a fair amount of overlap between persistent comorbidities and persistent refractory asthma. Because if you have si severe sinusitis, I think the ability of, of our uh, medical profession or surgical profession to adequately treat sinusitis is very, very limited. And so again, there is gonna be overlap in, in this initial subtyping. But let's talk about those potentially treatment-responsive patients. These are the patients who have the presence of reversible associated factors, smoking. Interestingly, about 25% of asthmatics are reported to smoke, which is about the general population. Um, it always is shocking for me to see that because certainly most of my asthmatic patients, actually, if they walk in a room where somebody is smoking, they have to run out of the room because they can't breathe. And so it makes me kind of wonder if that's a slightly different population of patients that are able to smoke and have asthma. And I think they are likely to have a different type of disease. It's certainly well described that they're less steroid responsive than, than typical asthma. Um, do they have persistent allergen exposure? Keeping the cat in the house even though you know you're very allergic um, to the cat is probably the, the, the prime example. Although I have to say now that I have two cats, I, I kind of can empathize with the patients that are struggling to get rid of their cats. Um, anxiety, this is a big uh, component, again, where you feel like the, your symptoms are worse than they actually are. And then these issues with compliance and adherence. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about compliance and adherence, because obviously this has been a huge issue in asthma for years. We've always recognized that asthma as a chronic disease is associated with poor compliance, poor adherence. And of course, in many cases it is, but the reasons for that poor compliance and adherence are many. And it's really important as a physician or an, an advanced practice provider to go through the reasons why patients are struggling to, to medicate, to take their medications, because oftentimes they are addressable. I think if I kind of go through my list, certainly one of the reasons is patients don't like taking inhaled medications. There are some people that just this concept of spraying things into their lungs is something that you really have to, have to work with. In the US, these medications are expensive. And the Affordable Care Act will help some, but not a lot. So I always have to do my survey of, of the audience. So if you are gonna prescribe 
middle dose Advair for a patient, the most commonly used uh, medication in the U.S. for the treatment of asthma. Patient doesn't have insurance. They have to go buy their Advair inhaler. How much are they going to have to spend out of pocket? Three hundred. Yeah, three hundred bucks. Now, there's not that many people that are going to fork out three hundred bucks a month for their Advair inhaler. That Advair inhaler be ought to be pretty life-changing um, to, to really fork out that, that amount of money. And certainly, they're not going to take it every day if they have to, you know, if I can extend it for two months as opposed to three months by taking it every other day or once a day as opposed to twice a day. I mean, these are all games that patients play because they don't like how expensive the medications are. <coughs> There's all sorts of issues with patents. Every asthma medication is a patented medication. There's no generics. I mean, it's a horrible situation. Um, interestingly, there's also the situation of younger people not wanting to be dependent on a medication. There's a huge issue in the, in the asthma population of patients saying, well, if I keep taking these medications, I'm going to be dependent upon it, and I'm never going to be able to get off of these medications, and it's going to show that I'm weak, that I need this crutch to, to survive. And again, that's something that you need to f explore these things with your patients. And then, of course, the patient forgot. I always like to give my example of when I'm taking an antibiotic for something like this, um, that I'm usually pretty good for taking it for about five days, and then the sixth day I'll remember the morning and not the evening dose, and by the eighth day it's like, did I take it at all? And, you know, I'm a physician. I know the issues <coughs> of antibiotic resistance, et, et cetera, but I still don't do it the right way. So, you know, people are people, and it seems to be part of the human condition. Interestingly, they've done a lot of work with cancer chemotherapy patients um, now. And or, adherence to cancer chemotherapy medications, oral cancer chemotherapy medications, is exactly the same as it is for, for asthma medications. And this is a disease that, again, if you don't take your cancer chemotherapy, you're going to die. Asthma is not quite that much of a, a, a hit for most people. Most people aren't going to die of asthma. But the compliance and adherence is exactly the same. And then, of course, in the asthma world, in the difficult asthma world, you've got the issue of these medications actually might not be working for these patients either. And so here we are. You've got to take this medication every day, and the medication isn't really working. Um, and then, of course, you've got the issues of all the inhaled medications in asthma. Each one of the inhaled medications has, comes in a different device. They actually have slightly different techniques that have to be used. The poor patient has to remember, um, do I do a high inhalation or a low inhalation or a medium inhalation, and which one goes with which? I mean, these are complicated uh, medications to use. In addition to those medication issues, you've got the co comorbidities that can worsen asthma. In this case, again, the asthma may not be severe, but the complexity of the presentation makes it appear to be severe. Obesity, one of the, uh, one of the big issues is that obesity can profoundly worsen the shortness of breath, but it may not be due to an obstructive physiology or bronchial hyperresponsiveness. <clears throat> there are data to suggest that asthma is more likely to mis be misdiagnosed in obese men, especially if they have a history of an urgent care visit um, for, for asthma. Um, when it is asthma, similar to smokers, it may be less responsive uh, to, to the usual medications, including steroids. And certainly chronic sinusitis, I've already alluded to, worsens the cough, worsens the sputum, really difficult to treat. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, clearly associated with asthma, but really very little uh, evidence for cause and effect. All right, now we've got difficult asthma. We've, re we've ruled out all these comorbidities, so we're starting to get to the point where it actually could be severe asthma. Now we need to determine whether it's controlled or uncontrolled. 
And there are four um, parameters that we actually came up with um, that, that qualifies a patient as having uh, poor control. The first is poor symptom control, and there are lots of asthma questionnaires out there now. We specifically worked on, uh, focused on the asthma control questionnaire or the asthma control test, e both of which are easily available, can be used in anybody's practice, um, with specific cut points for what's not well controlled or controlled. Frequent severe exacerbations, two or more bursts of systemic corticosteroids of three days or, uh, or more e each in the previous year. Serious exacerbations, at least one hospitalization, intensive care unit, or mechanical ventilation in the previous year. And then airflow limitation, having airway obstruction and FEV1 less than 80% of predicted following a medication withhold. And any one of those qualifies a patient as being uncontrolled. So that sort of is our, our definition of asthma. It's these patients who require high doses of inhaled corticosteroids in combination with a second controller asthma, asthma medication uh, to maintain control of their disease or who never achieve control. But obviously, that's an umbrella definition. That encompasses a whole boatload of things um, based on symptoms, degree of exacerbations, and lung function. It's not very specific. It is an umbrella term. And I think we're now moving in the direction of understanding that that's inadequate, um, that we really need to do a better job of understanding the subtypes, the phenotypes of asthma that exist. Um, and I think over the last, um, yeah, now probably 10 years, a lot of progress has been made in that direction. And this was one of the earlier cluster analyses that was done of the Severe Asthma Research Program, an NHLBI-sponsored network uh, program of about 750 asthmatics of a range of mild to the most severe disease. And I think in this non, um, uh, not, I won't say not, less biased approach to understanding patient characteristics and defining clusters, they were able to identify statistically five different clusters of, of asthmatic patients, and maybe three of which are not particularly surprising. A group of early onset mild asthma patients, a group of mild to moderate uh, asthma patients, which actually was the largest group, early onset disease, and then a, a group of very severe early onset uh, atopic asthmatics. All of these patients had early onset disease. And then two other clusters, a late onset, less atopic, primarily female uh, group of patients who tended to be obese. And then another group of very late, of late onset, primarily females, severe obstruction, um, less atopy, high healthcare utilization, et cetera. These two clusters tended to be later onset, these uh, clusters tended to be early onset, but the main differentiators of these clinically derived clusters were when you got your disease and lung function testing, all of which are easily accessible to any physician that's trained in internal medicine. You can ask the patient when you got your disease and you can do spirometry testing. So I think a really nice uh, and important sort of step, <laughs> but unfortunately, None of that really tells us anything about the underlying pathobiology of the disease. And so I think we had to begin to take some steps to try to understand biology. And there, were some, there was a very important study that actually has now allowed us to take this umbrella, divide it into early and late onset, because I think that's still actually a pretty important question to ask, but now has allowed us to in, 
incorporate the presence or, active, uh, or absence of inflammation into that. And the presence or absence of inflammation, particularly a Th2-like or a type 2-like inflammation, uh, re probably related to Th2 cytokines, IL-4, IL-13, IL-5, but measured clinically by things that are as simple to measure as blood eosinophils on a CBC, um, and exhaled nitric oxide, which is actually becoming much more easy to, to uh, measure and I think is going to be persistently helpful uh, in, our, in our management of patients. And so we can now begin to incorporate this inflammatory component and actually divide, start to define molecular phenotypes. So molecular phenotypes, I think this is sort of the next wave of understanding asthma. And this was a study from uh, UCSF, John Fahey and Prescott uh, Woodruff, where they actually had taken some epithelial cells from human beings, put them in a culture dish, and stimulated them with a Th2 cytokine interleukin-13. And they looked for what those, those epithelial cells made. And they made a bunch of different things, but they specifically made three things, periostin, clica-A1, and serpent-B2. They had done a previous study where they'd actually obtained fresh epithelial cells from the airways of asthmatics and healthy controls, mild asthmatics, no inhaled steroids, very mild patients. And they actually then went back to those fresh samples and they looked in those epithelial cells for expression of these three factors. And what they found, I think, kind of surprised them. So in this group of mild asthmatics, only about 50% of them really had evidence for this, what we would consider kind of this classic Th2 allergic atopic sort of inflammatory process in this group of mild asthmatics. The rest were right in here with the healthy controls, had no evidence of this Th2 inflammatory process. But if you did fall into this Th2 or Th2-like high group over here, you were more likely to be atopic, have eosinophils, have subepithelial basement membrane thickening, bronchial hyperresponsiveness, et cetera, and it was associated with high, higher levels of these cytokines in the tissue. But what was the most important element of this study was that it actually helped to predict response to therapy. So they had actually done this, again, part of that study. They took those mild patients who weren't treated with inhaled corticosteroids, and they treated them with inhaled corticosteroids, and they followed them for eight weeks. And I think what you can see is if you were in this TH2 <coughs> high group, <coughs> you had a very robust improvement in FE1. You did what all of us would like to see happen to our patients when we treat them with inhaled corticosteroids. If you fell into this TH2 low group, you had no response to inhaled corticosteroids at all the corticosteroids weren't infective, effective. Sort of getting to my point of, well, we keep giving patients the medications, but they may or may not even respond to them, so why would they continue to take them? But I think this was the first evidence that if you targeted treatment to the right inflammatory process, you would get a much better response. Now, inhaled corticosteroids are very um, nonspecific anti-inflammatory agents. We really don't know exactly how they work, even to this day. Um, and so I think we've now started to move to, okay, there is this concept that there are Th2 cytokines or type 2 cytokines floating around. What if we actually target those type 2 cytokines? And so, again, I think there was a very interesting study that was published now four years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, which took 200 patients with moderate to severe asthma on middle to high doses of ICS and, and long-acting beta agonists, and they randomized them to treatment with anti-IL-13 versus placebo. And if you looked at the results in the whole cohort, yeah, not so exciting. I think very few drug companies would get very excited about this improvement over placebo. It was there, but really not very dramatic. 
<coughs> but they had pre-specified a couple of ways to look at um, a TH2 high or type 2 high versus low group. And one of them was dividing the patients um, on the presence of periostin levels in their blood. Now, you remember from that slides, the couple slides that I just showed you, periostin was one of those genes in the airway epithelial cells. But these airway epithelial cells also can secrete this into the blood, so they actually measured it in the, in the blood. Um, and what they found was if you took a median split of the population as the high group versus the low group, now instead of this fairly modest response in FEV1, you started to get actually a pretty reasonable response in FEV1 in the high group. But in the low group, there was absolutely nothing going on in the low group. And I think this started to define a responder population to a type 2 high targeted therapy. There's been similar results with another anti-IL-5 um, that looked at sputum, uh, sputum levels of IL-13 and showed that if you had high levels of sputum IL-13, you seem to have a better response as well. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's not severe asthma, I promise. <coughs> um, <coughs> so, uh, interestingly... In addition to periostin, there's another biologic marker that I've already mentioned called exhaled nitric oxide. And exhaled nitric oxide, unlike periostin, can be measured in, in anybody's office. It costs about $2,000 to invest in the equipment. And then it's probably somewhere around um, eh, $40 to $50 per test. So it's not cheap, cheap, but it's not horribly expensive either. Um, and you can measure exhaled nitric oxide. And you can divide patients into high and low exhaled nitric oxide levels as well. Now, why is that important? Well, we also know that the enzyme that makes exhaled nitric oxide, inducible nitric oxide synthase, is actually increased in the presence of IL-13. So both at the protein and the mRNA level, you get an increase in the enzyme that makes it. And now when you treat with an anti-IL-13, very similar to what I showed you with periostin, the group that has the high exhaled nitric oxide seems to do better. But importantly, you also can prove that this exhaled nitric oxide is coming from a type 2 high cytokine pathway, because when you block that cytokine, you get a reduction in the, in the exhaled nitric oxide. And here you can see here's the placebo. Here's the group that got treated with the anti-IL-13. It's, it's a very significant reduction in exhaled nitric oxide, saying that the biology is working, that the drug that is blocking IL-13 is actually blocking a downstream marker, that being exhaled nitric oxide. So this seemed to be very promising, but this was just targeting IL-13. What if you targeted both IL-4 and IL-13, and you did that by blocking the receptor. So this is um, the, the uh, study that I was involved with really from the beginning where we designed the actual study uh, design. It was, I think, a, a pretty unique study design. These were patients who had moderate to severe, poorly controlled asthma, um, who had blood eosinophils of 300 or more. So we wanted to target patients right from the start that had evidence for type 2 inflammation. And we took those patients who were on combination therapy, we put them on a stable dose of combination therapy, and then added dupilumab, the IL-4 receptor blocker, or placebo for four weeks. Four weeks of background therapy, maintaining their ICS-LABA combination, and then tapering off their background therapy over the subsequent eight weeks, and then leaving them with three weeks of, of uh, no background therapy. 
and so again, it gave us a chance to see what would happen when you added it to the medication, what happened when you tapered off the medication, and what happened when they were off of the medication completely. And I think what um, the results actually surprised me, certainly, and, and surprised a lot of other people as well. So this, the, fir the primary outcome was the loss of asthma control measured by uh, increases in symptoms, beta agonist use, need for increased uh, corticosteroids, et cetera. And I think you can see that as you would expect in the placebo group, um, well, as you would expect when you added on the um, dupilumab or placebo to people that were on inhaled corticosteroids and combination therapy, not really very much. They didn't lose control during those first four weeks of the study. But as you started to taper off, first the LABA, then the inhaled corticosteroids in the group that was on placebo, there were a lot of patients that lost asthma control over the full 12 weeks of, of the study. And in fact, about 50% of the placebo group lost asthma control as you tapered off their background medication. If you were on the dupilumab arm, however, um, basically there were three people that lost control of their, of their asthma on uh, background dupilumab therapy, even when they were completely off of any background therapy. So really quite striking responses. Now, in addition to not losing control of their asthma, they looked at a variety of other different outcomes, one of which was lung function testing. Uh, and I think this was really striking. I've said in many uh, investigator meetings where <coughs> My colleagues would say, oh, never add a drug to combination therapy because the patient will never be able to get any better than that. Well, I think this study showed that that really wasn't the case, that even when patients were on combination therapy here at the baseline and you added dupilumab to their treatment, there was still a 250 ml improvement in FEV1 on top of combination therapy that you did not see in the placebo group. Then you discontinued the long-acting beta agonist, a little bit of a decline. As you tapered off the inhaled corticosteroids, the dupilumab group actually was able to hold pretty nicely, and at the end, actually was still higher than the baseline. You can see in the placebo group, on the other hand, and people were dropping out because they lost control, there was a progressive decline in FEV1. So both at this endpoint and at this point, there were marked st statistically significant differences in improvement in FEV1. Also in asthma control, so that asthma control questionnaire, uh, again, as you put a patient in a clinical trial, everybody gets better. They just know they're getting the, the best treatment in the world, so everybody gets better after that first week. Um, but then you can see on placebo, that improvement sort of stabilizes. On dupilumab, there was a progressive improvement, and again, very statistically significant at the end of the trial, despite the fact that there was no background therapy in the patients that were treated with dupilumab. And then importantly, the biologic response predicts the physiologic response. So I already talked a little bit about exhaled nitric oxide, how exhaled nitric oxide is a pretty good type two biomarker. Um, they looked at patients uh, exhaled nitric oxide over the course of the study. And again, biology is so helpful. It's really wonderful to see these biolo biologic pathways being evident and helpful in actual disease. So uh, exhaled nitric oxide in the placebo group, um, you can see doesn't change over the stable background phase as you start tapering off the medications, though, as you would expect, the exhaled nitric oxide rises because you're tapering off the inhaled corticosteroid. But in the dupilumab group, there was a very marked reduction in exhaled nitric oxide 
on top of combination therapy that was then maintained through the course of the study. And basically, the improvement in exhaled nitric oxide correlated with the improvement in FEV1, showing that the better your blockade of that type 2 cytokine pathway, the more of an effect on your FEV1. Now, there's another TH2 cytokine, another type 2 cytokine known as uh, anti-IL-5, or IL-5, sorry. Um, and I think it's very strongly related uh, to what I call a non-traditional type 2 phenotype. And these are patients that I'm guessing everyone who's seen more than a few asthmatics has seen at some point. These are highly eosinophilic, adult-onset severe asthmatics. And we described this uh, group of patients now 10-plus years ago in a biopsy study where we looked at patients with severe asthma and looked at the eosinophils in their lung tissue and, and showed that very nicely. If you had late-onset disease, you actually had higher levels of eosinophils in your tissue than if you had early-onset disease. And if you looked um, in a cluster analysis, this is from the UK. This is using an unbiased ap approach to understanding inflammation and symptoms and so on. They actually identified a similar group of, of patients who had eosinophilic predominant, inflammation predominant disease who were late onset patients. And if you fall into this group of patients, you're likely to have higher levels of leukotrienes, less atopy, more aspirin sensitive disease, um, really a different subset of patients. Adult onset, severely uh, persistently eosinophilic despite high doses of inhaled corticosteroids. These patients often require systemic corticosteroids. Um, they usually have sinus disease. That's really one of the hallmarks of this group of patients. Not always nasal polyps, but sometimes aspirin sensitivity. And their relationship to Th2 immunity has really been less clear because they're not very allergic. Their IgE levels are variable, but they can have very high exhaled nitric oxide levels not suppressed by corticosteroids. There are some people that suggest some of these new inflammatory cells called ILC2 cells may be playing a role. Well, it seemed quite obvious if this was an eosinophilic predominant disease that this would be a good group to target with anti-IL-5 therapy. Now, anti-IL-5 um, therapy for asthma has had a very interesting and rocky course. Um, there were studies done with anti-IL-5 in the 90s that failed. Um, and the drug was basically dropped. And then a group of investigators at the, the University of Leicester in the UK said, but we think this group of patients might actually do pretty well with it. So they identified patients with primarily eosinophilic asthma, late onset disease. They used anti-IL-5 compared to placebo. And lo and behold, in this drug that hadn't worked in the whole asthma population, there was about a 40% reduction in exacerbations <laughs> over the course of a year. And this you know, pretty difficult to treat population of patients. Now, several studies have followed on that. It's very consistent. Anti-IL-5 does have about a 40 to 50% ability to reduce asthma exacerbations in these patients with eosinophilic disease. You can use blood eosinophils, sort of like you could with dupilumab, to identify the group of, of responders. And I think, you know, the big question as we move forward in this sort of biologic world is, will there be differences in the patients that IL-4, IL-13 approaches target as a, compared to IL-5 approaches? We're sort of really entering a, a brave new world here in, in the asthma arena, and I think we're going to understand a lot about the biology of the disease and hopefully uh, understand better ways to treat these patients as well. Now, I've been kind of talking intermittently about uh, so the clustering approaches <coughs> and then the clinical approaches and how closely do these clustering approaches actually reflect our clinical biases. 
So I was part of a, a large-scale clustering study performed on 383 patients from the Severe Asthma Research Program who had undergone bronchoscopy. So different from what I showed you initially, there was actually inflammatory um, uh, outcomes in this study. We used 112 variables uh, and identified six subject clusters based on those 112 variables. Uh, and we actually then identified six subject clusters. Subject, subject cluster one was primarily healthy controls, two mild asthmatics in that cluster. <coughs> subject clusters two to four were early onset asthma of increasing severity. Subject cluster five, late onset eosinophilic asthma with nasal polyps and sinus disease, exactly that group of patients that I was just talking about. And then subject cluster severe, the subject cluster six was the most severe and the most corticosteroid dependent cluster. And similar to what I've been talking about previously, the variables with the greatest impact were age and onset, symptoms, medication use, but additional variables were critical to differentiating the single clusters, particularly things like inflammatory variables. So the this most severe asthma was associated with the most complex immune process. Uh, so this is looking at the variable of greater than three oral corticosteroid bursts in the previous year. Here's our six subject clusters. I think you can see very nicely that as you go from subject to cluster two to cluster six, you get increasing use of oral corticosteroids. And by the time you're in subject cluster six, nearly 100% of that population had had greater than three oral steroid bursts in the previous year. But now you start looking at some of the inflammatory markers that go with that. Needless to say, this exhaled nitric oxide comes across again as a very prominent biomarker, higher in this group of patients despite the fact that they've had more steroids than any of the other groups of patients, high BAL eosinophils, and reasonably high BAL neutrophils. So exhaled nitric oxide bio biologically is generated by this INOS enzyme. The enzyme increases in response to IL-4 and IL-13 uh, stimulation, but also to other cytokines, and most interestingly, to interferon gamma. Um, high levels have been reported across a spectrum of asthma severity and even in allergic rhinitis patients, so it's been hard to make much sense of. Uh, it's reported in many studies to be suppressed by corticosteroids in mild asthma, but it clearly remains elevated in a large percentage of oral corticosteroid-treated patients and so independently predicts chronic oral corticosteroid use. It's strongly associated with eosinophils, but it's not dependent on eosinophils. So we decided to do a clustering of epithelial samples, epithelial brushing samples from a range of 155 epithelial brushings uh, from asthmatics and healthy controls. Um, we actually identified 589 genes in these microarrays, so a lot of genes that correlated strongly with exhaled nitric oxide. And importantly, the gene that correlated the most strongly with exhaled nitric oxide was inducible nitric oxide synthase, the enzyme that makes it. We then clustered the genes and we identified five patient clusters, three with high levels of exhaled nitric oxide, two with low levels of exhaled nitric oxide. They each had distinct characteristics. We then expanded them to 1,349 genes, which were differentially expressed across the clusters. So you can see this is the checkerboard of the clustering that we initially identified based on the 589 genes. Every column is a patient. Every row is a gene, and you can see that there's pretty obvious differences in the gene expression across these subject clusters. And if you just go across subject one to five, subject cluster one is less atopic, healthy controls primarily, or mild, um, very asymptomatic asthmatics. Um, subject cluster two, very dramatically different from subject cluster one, 73% uh, moderate to severe disease with low lung function and, and eosinophilia. Subject cluster three, 
again, very distinct from any of the other clusters. Later onset, majority severe, mixed inflammation, nasal polyp sinus surgery, uh, subject cluster four, interesting group of patients, the earliest disease onset, the longest disease duration. 100% of these patients are atopic, but they have very low levels of exhaled nitric oxide. And then finally, subject cluster five, the youngest, early onset, 50% African-American, interestingly, with strong family history, and uh, really the most traditional allergic asthma group. But interestingly, we tried to start to understand the biology that's underlying these clusters, too. So then we looked at the 1,349 genes that separated these five clusters and did a hierarchical clustering of these 1,300 genes and identified multiple different pathways that we think are important in these clusters, including those genes related to innate immunity, cilia-related genes, very distinctly different across the clusters. The notch, wind, beta-catenin pathway, neuronal function, very different across the pathways. Interferons and apoptosis, again, very distinctly different. And the type 2 gene clusters, the periostins and the clica-A1s, again, very different across the gene clusters. So, Obviously, this is telling us that there is a very complex inflammation, immune process uh, present. And I think one of the reasons that I was interested in this is because back in the, well, I don't know, late 2000s, um, I was really concerned that we knew nothing about the pathology of severe asthma. And I was seeing all these really difficult severe asthma patients um, who had been treated with high doses of steroids for a long period of time. And I said, let's get some pathology on these patients. Let's try to understand the disease. So we started doing uh, video-assisted thoracoscopic biopsies on these patients. And we reported this, um, our first 10 patients in 2012, where we identified 10 severe asthma patients, who are now well over 25, who met an asthma diagnosis, all of whom were on systemic corticosteroids for many years, often adult onset or adult worsening disease, modest obstruction, but usually with some evidence for a slight decrease in the forced vital capacity and diffusing capacity as well, Generally, they had high exhaled nitric oxide and blood eosinophils despite corticosteroids, but couldn't make a diagnosis of Schurg-Strauss in any case uh, of any of these patients. And they often had a history of autoimmune, uh, an autoimmune family history. And what we found on the pathology, I think, really surprised us. Uh, so clearly, profound small airway inflammation. This is a small airway. Um, you can see it's filled with a mucus plug. You've got um, a very uh, hyperplastic epithelium, a lot of uh, subepithelial basement membrane thickening, inflammation, et cetera. But over here, surprisingly, we found granulomas. Non-caseating granulomas, not very common, but clearly present. Not what you're supposed to see in asthma. So there's something that is separating apart these patients from more typical asthma and really defining a much more complex immunity. And what we found is these patients can, not all the time, probably about 60% of the time, respond quite well to non-steroidal immunosuppressive agents, things like azathioprine, uh, mycophenolate, in addition to their, to their corticosteroids, and really cut back on their need for corticosteroids. Well, in the last couple minutes, I just want to say a couple words about TH2 low or type 2 low <coughs> asthma. Certainly type 2 low asthma is really poorly defined. It's defined as the apparent absence of a type 2 cytokines and, and their signature. Their molecular pathways are poorly defined. 
These are generally adult onset patients, obesity-related, post-infectious, neutrophilic, maybe smoking-related. Um, there's some recent studies that I'll mention um, that suggest that the non-eosinophilic, um, perhaps more neutrophilic patients may respond to macrolide antibiotics. And I think in many cases, the asthma itself may be less severe than the TH2 high group of patients, but the confounders make it look more severe, and all of these patients are associated with a poor uh, response to corticosteroids. So there's been a lot of interest over the years in macrolides and their use um, in the treatment of asthma, really inconsistent efficacy studies, a suggestion that azithromycin improved asthma quality of life in neutrophilic asthma in 2009. And then this patient, uh, this study came out in 2013, where they tried to identify uh, non-eosinophilic asthmatics um, uh, and non-TH2 um, non types of asthmatics. They looked for patients uh, with no evidence of, of type 2 inflammation as defined by a low exhale nitric oxide level. They really didn't see an effect of azithromycin in that group of patients. But then if they pulled out those patients that also had low eosinophils, they started to get some ability to discriminate um, the uh, azithromycin response in reducing exacerbations as compared um, to the placebo effect. But obviously, this was a post hoc analysis. It's a little difficult to know really what that means. Uh, what about late onset obese asthma? This is a very interesting group of patients. This is Ann Dixon's study from just down the road in, in Burlington. Um, 23 obese asthmatics evaluated before and 12 months after bariatric surgery. Uh, roughly phenotyped her patients into those who were, quote, TH2 high versus low on the basis of IgE levels, not the best way to do it. But I think pretty distinct uh, differences with her low group having very low levels of IgE, her high group having high levels of IgE. And if you were in this low group, you tend to have later onset asthma. Uh, this later onset low IgE group uh, really had a very nice improvement in methacholine hyperresponsiveness following bariatric surgery. But if you were in the more traditional TH2 high group, there was absolutely no effect on bronchial hyperresponsiveness. So again, it seems to suggest that this late onset obese low IgE, um, less TH2 inflammation may be a separate phenotype of asthma where weight loss is really going to drive your response to treatment and you really want to focus on that in those patients. And then finally, I can't do a talk on severe asthma, at least not mention bronchial thermoplasty. Um, this is a very unique approach um, to, to treating asthma, which requires three bronchoscopies. You have to heat the airways to 65 degrees. It's um, thought to decrease the smooth muscle in the airways. I think the data to prove that in asthma are still really uh, minimal. Um, but the studies have always really excluded severe asthmatics, many severe asthmatics, on the basis of their FEV1, presence of sinus disease, et cetera. They ruled out many of the TH2 high-like um, patients. And in the primary outcome, they saw an improvement in asthma quality of life. But I'll challenge you that the difference between uh, the improvement in the thermoplastic group versus the placebo group here is really pretty much pretty modest, and this is asthma quality of life. Now, there was an effect, maybe, on exacerbations in the, um, uh, in the uh, thermoplastic group, but there's also a high number of exacerbations in the first three months post-treatment. Um, they've done some shorter and longer-term efficacy studies of thermoplasty, uh, the data of which are very flawed because they've never had a placebo group, and there's yeah, maybe even some evidence to suggest that there may be a slight decline in lung function in the group that was treated with thermoplasty. So our ATS-ERS uh, task force on severe asthma recommended only doing thermoplasty in the presence of an IRB-approved clinical registry or, or trial uh, because, again, I think we don't know what we're doing with this approach to therapy. So, 
my conclusions. Certainly, if you see a patient with difficult asthma, it's absolutely of ultimate of, of utmost important to determine whether the patient has asthma or not. You want to treat underlying comorbidities and confounders. You want to phenotype the patients to identify the presence of a type 2 cytokine signature. And you can actually do that pretty easily these days. And then you want to maximize corticosteroids in those patients who have a type 2 signature, but consider alternatives in the most severe patients, including doing diagnostic biopsies, including doing thoracoscopic biopsies of patients to better understand and treat these patients with severe asthma. So thank you very much for your attention. Happy to take questions. So I guess I'm the designated timekeeper today, so we have a minute uh, or two for questions. Yeah. That was very helpful. We have a pulmonary room, uh, and so we are trying to sort these things out. Um, but I'm not sure I wouldn't call your allergic granulomatosis patients Turk Strauss um, because they have sinus disease, they don't have nasal bulbs, they're not aspirin sensitive, they have granuloma on their biopsy. To me, that's Turk Strauss. <laughs> It depends on, Schirk's uh, is, uh, depends on who you ask, sort of disease, I, I think, in that there are lots of different definitions. Um, I've never been able to find other systemic disease in these patients besides the sinus. Um, these are patients who don't have lung infiltrates, which is also one of the things that I've sort of have in, in my definition of, of Schirk-Strauss. I think they're along the spectrum of Schirk-Strauss. You know, I've now followed patients for, uh, about six years, I guess, with the disease. No one's developed full-blown Schergstrauss. So I think the jury's still out. Right. Yeah, no, no, no one has done that. Although Peter Barnes will probably do it soon, because Peter Barnes is a big um, Theophylline fan. So no, no one's done it yet. This was sub sub Q sub Q injections, and it's every two weeks. So my question is: Is there any hope of, in, of a, a non-antibody agonist? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and this, I, I think of these as sort of the proof of concept years in that, you know, this is the easiest way to, to antagonize that receptor is to do an antibody to it. But as soon as you're showing efficacy, now there's a whole boatload of other folks that are going to say, what are the other ways we can antagonize that receptor? Are there parts of the pathway that we can inhibit with a small molecule or whatever? And there's a lot of those studies that are, that are ongoing. There's going to be a paper that published in the New England Journal in the next probably month or two um, that will use a, a small molecule approach that actually does pretty much the same thing. And I think this would seem to be a sort of nanomedicine ideal place to think about you can actually Well, and, and I think that's a good question. You know, can you see the same effect with and inhale the local distribution as opposed to a systemic. Uh, and I don't think that, again, the jury's out on that one. The, um, I was part of a, pit a pitrokinra, which was an inhaled version of dupilumab, not as good and all those, you know, it's kind of apples and oranges. But the efficacy was there, but probably not as strong as the dupilumab. So again, do you need that systemic kick too? I don't know, maybe. Uh, one more. <laughs> I was really struck by 
impact of the placebo um, effect of being in a study and the sustained effect of that? <laughs> it's pretty impressive. It seems like it's a good <coughs> to leave that on the table in treating people with chronic disease. And I'm just wondering, is anybody looking at the impact of close attention and presence of healthcare through well, I think it's in clear agreement that any time a patient gets into a clinical trial, they do better. That there's something about attention to the patient, attention to the detail of what they're using, how they're using it, blah, 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 always makes patients better. And so, uh, you know, I think in an asthma specialty center, that's what one of the first things that we try to do is we try to make sure the patient feels connected, that they feel like patients are, that the physicians are involved in their care, that they've got a nurse, educator, or whatever who's working with them. And, you know, people do get better. But is there still a placebo effect, you know, that if I just brought them in and started injecting them with saline, you know, would that help additionally? I'm guessing it would. I have been reluctant to go down that pathway. All right. Well, I want to thank you again. That was really terrific. And thank you all for coming. <laughs> I survived. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought I was going to lose it.